12. If you've got a bulletin on the way in, there's some notes where you can follow along with the message this morning. Last week we looked at the first nine plagues, and we cut it off right there. We left the tenth one for this week, and the passage that we looked at last week, we didn't read it all the way through because it was several chapters, but it started and it ended with God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I just want you to go back with me to the end of the verses we looked at last week, and I want you to see how it ended. It says that Pharaoh said to him, that's to Moses, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on that day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. I hope you see the irony in the way that that section ends. Pharaoh has just been humbled by nine devastating plagues that he and his people and his army and the gods of Egypt were powerless to stop. And at the end of it, his heart is so hard, he actually thinks that he's the one that has the power of life and death. So that he looks at Moses and threatens Moses. After all the devastation that God has brought upon Egypt, Through the hand of Moses, he has the audacity, because his heart is so hard, to look at Moses and to assume, to presume, that he has the power of life and he has the power of death at his disposal, at his beck and call. That changes this morning with the last plague. And God shows Pharaoh, you do not have the power of life and death in your hand. That is something that I alone have. I want to clarify something that I mentioned last week. We're going to talk about a few introductory things before we read about the Passover. This is one of the things I said last week, and I just want to take a mulligan on it a little bit. Not that I disagree with what I said, but I think I could have been clearer. So last week I said instead of plague, the Bible uses the word signs and wonders. The word plague comes from a Latin word plaga, which means strike or blow. Now, if you paid attention last week, you saw the word plague in the verses that we read. And if you look this week at Exodus 11.1, you'll find the word plague again. So you look at that. It's not very clear what I was trying to say, and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. It seems like it's right here. So let me take a mulligan and try to be a little more clear on what I meant. Here we go. This is, uh, this is what I'm trying to say to you. In the, in the context, depending on the context, the Hebrew word naga can be translated as plague. When I say plague, I'm talking about like pestilence, sickness, some sort of disease. Or it can be translated as strike meaning like a punch or a military attack. The Hebrew word can be translated either way. And when they translated the Hebrew into Latin, they picked the word plaga because the word plaga can mean sickness, disease, plague, or it can mean strike or attack. It has the ambiguity in that. In the English, what I'm saying to you is plague is not the best word in English. Because when I say plague in English, you think like some sort of sickness, some sort of disease. Maybe you think of the bubonic plague, something like that. These were not just ten sicknesses that God sent against the Egyptians. These were ten strikes, ten attacks, ten punches, ten blows where God is trying to bring judgment on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians. So I think a better translation in English would be strike. Now, last week we didn't read all of the passage. This week we're not going to read all the passage, and I want to fill in just a few blanks 
and you go back and read it this afternoon. First of all, Exodus 11, 1 to 10. It contains an announcement about the final plague. There's no demands and there is no way of escape. This is interesting to me because when I look in my Bible and I look right above Exodus 11.1, the section heading says, A Final Plague Threatened. I don't think that's the best section heading that you could come up with because there's really no threat in what's about to come. This isn't Moses saying to Pharaoh at this point in the story, Do this, let my people go, or else this is going to happen. That's a threat. This is Moses saying to Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. We're not negotiating. I'm not asking for anything. I'm not giving you a way out. I'm just telling you, this is what God is about to do to you and to your people. The negotiations are all over. Another section we're not going to read is Exodus 12, 14 to 20. It contains instructions about how Israel was supposed to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread along with the Passover. And you can go back and look at that little section. And it's basically just a group of verses where God says, in addition to the Passover, this one night celebration, I want there to be sort of a week long feast where you clear out all the leaven and you go through these certain things. It's part of the week long preparation and celebration of the Passover. You can go back and read that. Now, let's talk about the big idea and then let's read about the Passover. The Passover was a reminder that Israel needed a sinless, substitutionary sacrifice to atone for their sins. They needed a sinless, spotless, holy, perfect, substitutionary, meaning something to stand in their place as a substitute, sacrifice, meaning something has got to die. Sin leads to death. And so there's got to be payment And the Passover is teaching Israel you need a sinless substitutionary sacrifice to atone for your sins. So let's read a few verses here. We're going to start in Exodus 12, verse 1. We'll go all the way to verse 13. Then we'll jump to verse 21, and we'll go down to verse 32. So you follow along as we read the Scripture. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses or to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. It's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we read this passage and we are reminded of your power and your holiness and your justice. Father, we are reminded of your grace and your mercy. Father, we see so many pointers in this passage that make us think of Jesus. Father, as we think about the Passover this morning and as we think about the good news of Christmas... We pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth. Father, give us hearts that are not hard towards you, that are not hard towards the truth. Father, we ask for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2012, there was a Kickstarter campaign. Kickstarter is a social media sort of crowdfunding approach to projects or publishing or different things. And this one in 2012 was called Never Built Los Angeles. And the tagline, uh, if you get on, it's still posted online, you can watch it. The tagline on the promo says this, throughout its history, Los Angeles has been built on dreams. Many of those dreams have never been built. 
And the whole point of the campaign was that this group of people wanted to raise money for the Architecture and Design Museum in Los Angeles, and they wanted to create a new exhibit, and the exhibit was going to be all of the amazing, spectacular buildings that were planned for the city of Los Angeles, but that were never actually built. And so there's some really neat stuff online. You can check this out. I'm going to show you just a couple. This was a Frank Lloyd Wright design for the Los Angeles Civic Center. And I know it's kind of hard to see on that screen, but that's like main, the main drag through town coming right up to it and buildings on either side. And it's an, an amazing sketch of what he thought the Civic Center should look like. The next picture is LAX, and this was back way in the 50s. And somebody had this idea that we should create this futuristic-looking, space-age-looking airport. And they built something somewhat similar to this, but they didn't build exactly this. The last picture I'll show you is an interconnected system of parks and beaches and public space all the way through the city so that you could travel through the park system without ever having to get on the roads and you could get anywhere you needed to get in the city of Los Angeles. Many other projects like this were planned and part of the display. And there's something kind of hauntingly curious about thinking about all the amazing things that could have happened in a city that never actually did happen in a city. My guess is you've played that game with your own life. You've looked back and you've thought, what if this one thing had changed? Or what if this one thing had happened instead of not happening? Or what if this one thing didn't happen and it did happen? And you look back and you just sort of say, what would it have been like if things would have been different way back then? I just want to remind you that when we read about the Passover, when we celebrate Christmas, we're not thinking about what might have been. And we're not thinking about what could have been. We're not thinking, oh, this would have been amazing if this had happened. We're looking back, both in the Passover and at Christmas, and we're saying, something happened. It really did happen. In time, in space, in history, something was accomplished. Something really, really happened. We can look back and we can read about it. And today, things are different because of what really happened in the past. And we're thinking about that this morning when we think about the Passover and then when we try to connect it to Christmas. And I'll be honest with you right out of the gate. A lot of you may be thinking, why didn't you just preach a Christmas sermon? Why do we have to talk about this on Christmas of all days to talk about it? And to you, I say, this is the best day to talk about it. Because what you see in the Passover is such a clear picture to what ultimately happened in Jesus. And that's going to be our goal this morning, to sort of wrap our minds around the Passover and then to move forward and to think about how the Passover was fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. Now, before we jump into the Passover... There's one foundational truth that runs all the way through Exodus 11 and Exodus 12. In fact, it runs all the way through the Bible from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. And if you don't understand this foundational truth, none of those story makes sense. None of the Passover makes sense. The Christmas story doesn't make sense. None of it. So here's the foundational truth. Romans 3 and Romans 6. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. If you don't nail that down on a basic foundational level, you're not going to like the rest of the story. 
you're not going to be able to understand the rest of the story. The Bible is clear from Genesis to Revelation that we are all sinners and our sin earns us only one thing with God. There's only one thing that God truly owes us and that's death. And when you read about this death of the firstborn, I just want you to notice something that's a little bit different than the other plagues. In some of the other plagues, God made a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. And they didn't have to do anything to enjoy that distinction. They didn't have to wave a magic wand in the air for the flies to stay out of Goshen. God just did it. But on this one, this last plague, this last strike, everyone's underneath judgment. Egyptians and Hebrews. The wealthy and the powerful and the rich, all the way down to the poorest of the poor in the land. Look what we read in Exodus 11, verse 4 and 5. This is just backing up a little bit. I just want you to see that everyone is under the sentence of death. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl. Who are the slaves in Egypt? It's the Hebrews. This plague is not just against the Egyptians, it's against everyone. Death is coming for the firstborn, whether you are Pharaoh himself on the throne or whether you are an anonymous, unknown slave girl behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. No one is exempt. Everyone deserves death. And the distinction in the Passover doesn't come in based on your DNA, if you're Hebrew or if you're Egyptian. The distinction in the Passover comes in Do you observe the the commandments? Do you observe this instruction that the Lord gave you through Moses that you're to kill a lamb and wipe the blood on your doorpost and stay inside while death passes through the land? That's where the distinction comes in. It's not based on race. It's not based on ethnicity. It's not based on your income. It's not based on what country you're from. It's based on the lamb dying in your place. So let's talk about the Passover. There's several things we could say, and we're just going to limit it to four. The first thing you need to get is this Israel's history was reset with the first Passover. It was reset. If I asked you, what is the beginning of the people of Israel in the Old Testament? The right answer, I think, would be to go all the way back to the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to say that's where God started. He started with this one man named Abraham. And then the promises went to his son Isaac. And the promises went to his son Jacob. And then the promises went to the 12 sons. That was the beginning. That was the genesis of it. But in a real sense, God right here in this moment hits the reset button. Israel's about to become a real nation. They're going to get real land, a new land, a promised land. And God says, look, we're just going to hit the reset button. And this month, right now, this will be the beginning of your months. The calendar resets right here. We're starting over fresh. All of these things that I did for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the the 12 sons of Jacob, they're good, they're true. That was all awesome stuff. But now we hit the reset button and you become a new people. And he says, this month will be for you the beginning of months. A new month, 
a new year, a new calendar, a new people, a new land. Everything gets reset. Secondly, the blood of the Lamb was a sign for the people and a sign for the Lord. Obviously, it was not a sign for the Lord in the same sense it was for the people. God wasn't caught off guard as he passed through the land and said, Oh, I didn't know that they would put the blood up. I'm glad they did. Now I know to pass over. God doesn't need information like you and I need information, but the text does indicate it was a sign for the people and for the Lord. Look at Exodus 12, verse 7. Take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat. Jump forward and look at verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. It was some sort of token some sort of picture that the people could look at. They didn't have to be fearful about death coming into their house that night because they knew the blood is on the door. They had this sign. Verse 13 says, When I, when the Lord, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Look at verse 23. Same idea. The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door, and he will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. I'm guessing many of you have seen the Prince of Egypt. How many of you have seen Prince of Egypt? Considering Hollywood and how they tend to butcher biblical stories, it's not terrible. There's a lot of things they sort of fill in the gaps with and add in and change, but it's not the worst that you could do. And I read an interesting story about the Prince of Egypt. It was in pre-production, and they were talking about the story, and they were sort of going over the script and all these details before they really jumped into animation. And they decided they would bring in a group of, I guess, Bible scholars, pastors or theologians or professors or somebody to sort of fact check and to say, eh, you got this totally wrong, this isn't exactly right, this is pretty good. And they're looking over the script. And the one big complaint that they had, the one big one, is they came back to the production team and they said, look, when you're doing the, the Passover, you keep talking about a mark on the door. You keep saying that the people were going to put a mark on the door. And they said to him, it's not a mark. It's blood. It's not like they went out there with a sharpie or a piece of chalk and wrote the magic word on the door. It's blood. It's not like they went out there and scribbled the right little picture or hieroglyph or Hebrew character on the, on the door. It's blood. It's not a mark. It's blood. And it has to be more specific than that. The text says that the blood is a sign for the people and a sign for the Lord. I read something interesting this week. I read that in different parts of Egypt, archaeologists have found that it was common practice for aristocratic Egyptians, when they would move into a new house, to write their name on the doorframe of their house. And they've excavated this all over Egypt. The wealthy, the powerful, the influential, people who had any means, their name or their hieroglyph, their family symbol, would be written up on the door. If that's the case, you understand what God is saying in this. You need to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. A substitute has to die so that death can pass over you. 
It's not just that you need to go out there and, you know, write the magic word on top of your hieroglyph. It's that you need to kill a sinless substitutionary sacrifice. And you take the blood and you smear the blood over your, over your door, over your name. It's a picture of ownership that God is purchasing these people. It's a picture of judgment that someone has already died so that these people could live. So it's not just a mark, but it's blood. Number three, Moses and Israel exercised active faith on the night of the Passover. These people exercised active faith on the night of the Passover. And I just want you to look at Exodus 12 and Hebrews 11. Exodus 12, the people of Israel went out and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. That's obedience. That's taking action. But look at the New Testament commentary on this verse. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. That's faith. And the two of those things in the Bible go together. Faith and obedience. There's a connection between them. And in our sort of popular American Christianese culture, we tend to separate those two things. And we say, faith is one thing over here, and obedience is one thing over here, and they really don't have anything to do with each other. But in the Bible, they're not the same thing, but they are connected to each other. You can't just have one without the other. Obedience without faith is just legalism. And faith, James says, without obedience is dead and it's powerless to save anybody. These two things go together. And on the night of the Passover, Moses and the people exercise active faith, obedient faith. They believed the warning from the Lord that death was going to pass through. And they took appropriate action to do what God told them to do so that they might live. This is active faith. Faith, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Last, I want you to see that the Passover was intended to be a reminder of God delivering his people from Egypt. Everything about the meal was intended to be a reminder that they were slaves, that their slavery was bitter, and that God delivered them suddenly. You eat with your belt on and your staff in your hand, and you're not going to boil this meat. You don't have time to do that. Just light a fire and throw it on the fire and eat it. And you're going to have the bitter herbs to remind you of of all these bitter years of slavery. Everything in the meal reminds them of the bitterness of their slavery and how God delivered them from slavery. And God even says to Moses, this is going to be an annual reminder. You do it every year. And you do it so that future generations, when they grow up and they didn't experience this, they look at you and they say, why are we doing this? You say, it's because God saved us with a powerful hand. The blood of the the lamb on the doorpost. Death passed over us and we walked right out of the land of Egypt. So it's intended to be a reminder of God delivering his people. Now, just hit the pause button and let me be honest with you. There are plenty of people, maybe some of you, who really hate this story. I mean detest it. Modern commentators, modern experts, modern theologians look back on this story and they say, it's just so primitive. All the blood and the sacrifices and the death, it's just so 
makes God look so petty, telling the people to kill all these animals and smear blood all over their house. It just seems gross, and I don't understand it, and we're way more sophisticated than that. We know that God isn't like that. He wouldn't really tell the people to do this, and they look at it. I'll be honest with you. I read some of them this week, and they detest this story. Some of you may be sitting in the room, despite what I said earlier, thinking, this is the worst passage you could ever preach on Christmas morning. I just want the warm fuzzies. I don't want blood. I got to tell you, if you don't like the story of the Passover, you're going to really hate the plot development that comes about 2,000 years later. I mean, you're going to love the, the baby Jesus stuff and the away in a manger stuff and the silent night stuff and, you know, the animals are all there just sort of nicely watching because that's exactly what barn animals do and, you know, You'll love all the, oh, sweet baby Jesus wrapped up. Oh, it's just in the star. You'll love all that. That's great. But you'll hate the part where baby Jesus grows up into a man and dies as a sinless, substitutionary sacrifice for you. When he's made a bloody mess on the cross. If you don't like the Passover, you're going to hate the New Testament because the Passover is pointing you to something far greater than just a bunch of lambs or goats that were killed in Egypt thousands of years ago. The Passover is teaching God's people, you need a sinless substitute to die as a sacrifice for your sins. And God says, you do this every year over and over and over. One, to look back and remember how I saved you out of Egypt. Number two, to remember you need someone to die for your sins. The sentence of death is hanging over your head. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of your sin and the wages of my sin is death. So let's talk about the plot development that came 2,000 years later. Let's think about Christmas. Let's think about Jesus. Let's think about the gospel. Number one, in Christ we are new creations. In the Passover, God hits the reset button and he says everything starts now. New month, new calendar, new year, new people, new land. We, we start over right now. The Bible says essentially the same thing, that when you come to faith in Jesus, when you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, God hits the reset button on your life. You are made new. Look what Paul tells the Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And you may say, but I've got so much mess in the back of my life. I've got to back a trailer up to carry it all with me. You can't even believe, and I can believe. And what I really believe is that when you come to Christ and you acknowledge all that mess as sin and you put your faith in Jesus, the sinless substitutionary sacrifice who died as a bloody mess for your sins, God hits the reset button and he makes you new. Second, Jesus is the Lamb of God who died so that death might pass over believers. Look, this is not just an Exodus 12 idea. This is a Bible idea from the beginning all the way to the end. Think back to the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam and Eve one line in the sand, one command they were not to break. 
Don't eat from this tree, for the day that you eat it, you will die. They crossed the line. They missed the mark. They rebelled against their creator, and they lived. But something died. God killed an animal right there in Eden, the first death, the first bloody mess that ever was. And he used the skins of that animal to clothe his people. There was death, but the people lived because it was the death of a substitute. You see the same thing when God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, the son he loves, Isaac, and to offer him as a sacrifice. He's saying to Abraham, this cloud of death, this this judgment for sinners is hanging over your head, and I'm calling in your sin debt with Isaac. But if you've read the story, you know Isaac walks back down the mountain because God provides a substitute, a sacrifice. You see the exact same idea on the Day of Atonement when the people eventually get into the Promised Land. God says once a year you gather all together, you confess your sins, you lay your hand on this animal, and it's going to be like all your sins are placed on this beast, and then you kill the beast so that you can live. There has to be death. The wages of sin is death. It can be your death or it can be the death of a substitute. You see the exact same thing when you get to the pages of the New Testament. And a man named John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't just pull that nickname out of his back pocket. He wasn't just making that up on the fly. He's putting all the pieces together and he says, This is the one. He's here to die As a sacrifice, a sinless, spotless, righteous, substitutionary sacrifice that we might live. You see it in the Passover and you see it at the cross. Jesus is the Lamb of God who died so that death might pass over believers. Paul even goes this far in 1 Corinthians 5 and he says, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. That's Paul saying, if you want to understand what Jesus did, you've got to understand the Passover. How the substitute died so death could pass over. That's the same thing, Paul says, that's happened in Jesus. Jesus died, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, the Passover Lamb, connecting all these dots so that death can pass over you and pass over me. Number three, we experience eternal life by putting faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. In the Passover, Israel believes what God says and they respond appropriately. As believers today, we hear what God says and we respond appropriately. John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not die, would not perish, but would have eternal life. You can believe that. You can respond in faith and you can know life. Or you can harden your heart and you can know condemnation. You see that in the Passover? And to be honest with you, you see it in John chapter 3. Just a few verses after John 3.16 that we all know is John 3.18 that says, If you do not believe, you are already under condemnation. Condemnation and death and judgment 
and perishing if you harden your heart. You can believe and you can live. You can harden your heart and you can die. Those are the options. As the people of God, my prayer for you, you're here on a Christmas Eve Sunday morning, is that you believe the truth about Jesus and you live. But make no mistake, this comes from a a commentator named Alec Motyer. He says, those who will not bow to his word must bend to his judgment. If you do not bow to his word, you will bend to his judgment. Last idea is this. The Lord's Supper is intended to be a reminder of God delivering his people from sin and death. You may have noticed at the end of the verses we read earlier, God told the people to keep this forever. It's Exodus 12, 24. Observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. He says that multiple times in some of the other verses that we didn't read this morning. Do it forever. Do it forever. Do it forever. To which you may be wondering, why don't we do it? He said, do it forever. Why don't we do it today? That's a good question, and there's a good reason we don't do it today. And the reason is that about 2,000 years ago, that little cute, sweet baby Jesus had grown up into a man, and he sat down with his disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The same meal that the Jewish people had been celebrating for thousands, thousands of years. They knew the routine. They knew the words. They knew the process. They knew all of it. And Jesus, right in the middle of it, has the audacity to do something completely revolutionary. And the thing that he did that was so revolutionary is he just totally changed the celebration. Like Instead of talking about the lamb and the blood on the doorpost and all of that, he just redefines everything. And he hands bread to his disciples and he says, this is my body and it's going to be broken for you. And he passes around a cup and he says, this cup is my blood. It's going to be spilled for you. And he completely redefines the nature of this celebration. What he's saying is, I'm the Passover lamb. I'm the one you've been thinking about and praying for all these years. I'm the sinless substitutionary sacrifice that came as a baby, and grew up to be a man so that I could die for you, so that I could take your death and death would just pass over you. For that reason, we don't celebrate the Passover, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we take of the bread and we take of the cup and we remember the body of Christ that was broken for us and we remember the blood of Christ that was shed to purchase us, to redeem us. This morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've obeyed his command to be baptized, we invite you to participate with us. When the elements come by, we want you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. To those of you who are not followers of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. We just ask that as the elements come by that you let them pass and maybe spend a few minutes thinking about your relationship with God and thinking about Jesus as the sinless substitutionary sacrifice That when you believe in him, death passes over you. So I'm going to ask you to bow. Our deacons and our elders, those who are going to serve us, are going to head to the back. And we're going to pray together. Father, we stop this morning 
And we certainly celebrate the birth of Jesus. We think about the shepherds and the angels and Mary and Joseph and the wise men and all of the familiar trappings of Christmas. Father, but we also look back in Scripture and we think about this Passover. We think about the lamb that was killed and the blood that was smeared on the on the homes that death would pass over. And Father, we see truth about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. Father, as we take a few moments to think about the gospel, to think about Jesus, and to think about his body and his blood that was broken for us and spilled for us, Father, we do it thankfully, we do it gratefully, we do it celebrating all that you have done in sending Jesus to this earth. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.